Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. I've been asked to describe and provide some commentary as to the nature and value of a collection of papers that remained outside the purview of historians for some 226 years. Uh, those are the medical annotations of Sir John Pringle, or as he originally uh, called them, the medical and physical observations. Now, I became acquainted with this collection through a fellowship at the uh, Institute, there we go, for the Advanced Studies of the uh, Humanities at <clears throat> Edinburgh University from January to May of 2013. And during that time, I was investigating why Pringle wrote observations on the diseases of the army. This came out in 1752. Now, this volume, the first military medical textbook uh, in any language, was crafted from his experiences during the War of the Austrian Succession. And my hypothesis was that this book had more to do with moral philosophy and the uh, early Scottish Enlightenment thought than it did with either medicine or the military. Unfortunately, the, the admissions uh, committee at IASH uh, agreed with me, and they gave me a home for four months uh, in residence to prove my or to attempt to demonstrate my case. And it was during that time that um, uh, Pringle's medical annotations really um, piqued my interest, both as an historian and a physician. And last summer, I came back over for a few weeks to uh, explore those volumes again. And I've perused the entire collection, uh, but only gone through the first five volumes uh, page by page as I ran out of time. Um, now, under, to understand medical annotations, I think one must know a bit about the author and, and editor. So let me briefly introduce Sir John Pringle, M.D. Now, Pringle was born in April of 1707, the fourth son of the second baronet Stitchell near Kelso. He most likely received his primary education at home or attended the borough school in Kelso. <clears throat> then at 14 years of age, uh, he was sent north to St. Andrews University where his father's cousin, Francis Pringle, professor of Greek, and an anonymous regent of that university, mentored uh, young John for six years. Now, during those formative academic years, this would be 1721 to 27, essentially, Pringle was exposed to the educational changes occurring in Scottish universities at that time. The reformation of the universities, uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh especially, uh, in, medieval, uh, in which medieval scholasticism gave way to a reformed curriculum that was more responsive to the educational needs of the gentry and the professional classes, uh, more tolerant of differing opinions, had begun in the 1690s. Gershom Carmichael uh, at Glasgow taught moral philosophy that rested on rational and natural theological foundations, not upon revelation. In 1722, George Turnbull, regent at Marischal College, uh, Aberdeen, attacked the medieval scholastic curriculum there as, quote, profound veneration of senseless metaphysical creeds and catechisms admirably fitted to beget an early antipathy against all free thought, unquote. And Turnbull advocated a liberal education based upon 
the principles of moral and civic virtue, the use of experimental method of uh, reasoning to elucidate moral concepts and a recognition of the unity of natural philosophy, natural theology, uh, and moral philosophy. His friend and colleague, Colin McLaurin, agreed completely, and he noted, quote, natural philosophy is chiefly to be valued as it lays a sure foundation for natural religion and moral philosophy by leading us to the knowledge of the author and governor of the universe, unquote. You see, to Turnbull and to McLaurin, <clears throat> the concept that man's capacity to combine abstract ideas within the concrete framework of science to credibly answer ancient questions about life glorified both man and his creator. And this concept would grow, uh, continue to grow, that is, in Scotland, and be embraced enthusiastically by John Pringle. In 1726, another blow was struck at medieval scholasticism when Francis Hutcheson, a student of Carmichael's, published Moral Good and Evil, in which he challenged church doctrine on man's natural depravity and corruption by declaring that an, in, an inherent benevolence, a moral sense, as he called it, was what motivated human behavior. Now, these new ideas uh, were not only being tolerated, but accepted in Scottish universities by the mid-1720s. In Edinburgh, much of this educational restructuring was due to the efforts of William Carstairs, uh, regenting that system in which one professor taught one class of students all subjects through four years had been replaced by specialized professors at the University of Edinburgh. Carstairs was also very impressed with the philosophies and teaching styles of Carmichael Hutchison, uh, and he worked to hire uh, professors who could emulate these two men. Well, from 1727 to 28, Pringle attended the University of Edinburgh uh, to study medicine, and his uncle, another Francis Pringle, this time MD and president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, uh, and a young Pringle also attended um, well, he attended Monroe's anatomy classes, and he also took the extracurricular lectures from surgeon apothecary George Young. Now, Young was described by John Boswell that you see here as a, quote, acute, sensible, honest, good-natured man, but a great skeptic in medicine and empiric, as well as in every other thing, confining himself to good, evident, common sense, unquote. However, the following year, for reasons that can only be speculated upon, Pringle journeyed to Leiden, Holland, to study under the most renowned medical professor in Europe at that time, Hermann Borchow. Now, Borchow's medical theory, that is, his physiology and his pathophysiology, was essentially mechanistic, with a very strong overlay of, chem of chemistry in it. And in his clinical practice, he admired the methods of 17th century English physician Thomas Sydenham uh, tremendously. Now, Pringle received his MD at Leiden in 1730, and he returned to Edinburgh in late 1733. That's according to me. If you read uh, Dr. Maurice McRae's uh, delightful new biography of Pringle, you'll see that he has him coming back home a bit earlier than that, but I, I've never been able to account for that time. So, do read his book, it's delightful. But in any event, uh, at 26 years of age, Pringle was very ambitious um, of a uh, professional and economic success 
in the Scots capital. In February of 1734, he obtained the professorship of pneumatic and moral philosophy at the university. And in August, he received his license to practice from the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Now, the early phase of the Scottish Enlightenment was beginning to stir at this time. The, the early Scottish Enlightenment demonstrated a renewed social consciousness and vibrancy that supported institutions such as the Royal Infirmary, a voluntary hospital for the worthy poor. A burgeoning sociability and intellectual interaction also marked that era in Edinburgh. Social clubs and societies, uh, they just sprouted up like weeds. Was it the hotbed of genius that Tobias Smollett claimed? Well, if it wasn't, it certainly was heating up at that time, and it provided an exciting, stimulating, and, and tolerant atmosphere for a, an ambitious, intelligent young man like John Pringle. And by the way, Pringle was a member of the Rankinian Club uh, that you see there, third up from the bottom. Then, in 1742, the second Earl of Stair, Sir John Dalrymple, commander of British forces going to Flanders, uh, for what would become known as the War of the Austrian Succession, asked Pringle to accompany him uh, as his personal and staff physician. And although Pringle expected to be gone for only one campaign, he remained till the end of that war in 1748 as physician general to British forces in the field under the command of the Duke of Cumberland. Well, the following year, Pringle was appointed physician in ordinary to the Duke, and he began to establish a very successful private practice in London. Three years later, he published observations on the diseases of the army. Now, Pringle had planned uh, to compose a book on his wartime experiences before he ever got to Flanders. However, since he had only planned uh, on experiencing one campaign, uh, and not the six years of war that he did, Observations is definitely a very different book from that originally conceived. Pringle's preventive medicine concepts and discussions of diseases common to soldiers were obviously of interest to European physicians serving with their forces in the field. However, his discussion of malignant putrid fevers, especially that known as hospital, jail, or ship's fever, was of interest to all physicians in Britain and on the continent as well. And this book, coming from one who had served his king in wartime and now as physician uh, in the royal household, made Pringle a very, very famous man. Selected as a fellow of the Royal Society in 1750, Pringle was a very active member and he served as president from 1772 until his resignation <clears throat> in 1778. From 1778 to 80, Pringle continued with his practice. He, he continued entertaining colleagues, especially students, um, in his home on Sundays. But in April of 1781, he moved back to Edinburgh. The city, however, was not as he remembered it. Many of his friends were dead. Others, like himself, had become old and tired. Andrew Kippus, a friend of Pringle's uh, in London, said of the doctor uh, that he found, quote, the air of Edinburgh too sharp and cold for his frame. These evils were exaggerated <clears throat> by his increasing infirmities, unquote. And so in the fall of 1781, Pringle returned to London to a home on King Street just 
off of St. James Square. However, before he left Edinburgh, he presented the Royal College with his 11 volumes of medical and physical observations under the following conditions that you see there. For those of you in the back that may not be able to make that out, they were not to be published and they were not to be lent out of the library for any reason. And so that collection remained for the next 226 years. And then in 2007, <clears throat> it was decided that the collection should be opened to historians. So what are the medical annotations? Well, 10 of these ledger-sized volumes consist of medical and scientific correspondence gathered over 42 years. That's 1736 to 78, as best I can tell at this moment. Uh, more specifically, though, it is a collection of medical case reports and experiences with a wide variety of diseases, diagnostic dilemmas, therapeutic successes and failures, and personal opinions on all of these things from uh, the practice and experience of Pringle and those of at least 150 correspondents. Uh, and this is what I've counted so far in the first five volumes. Uh, the 11th volume is a smaller ledger and it's titled an index, um, which is a misnomer. Actually, this last volume uh, is the correspondence and editorial notes between John Boswell during his um, presidency of the Royal College and Pringle concerning the publication of the sixth edition of the Edinburgh Pharmacopeia. <clears throat> Why were these volumes collected. Well, Pringle tells us in the first volume that they were gathered to preserve the memory of what I shall observe to be the most useful in my own practice and what shall be communicated to me by others in practice but not published, on whose judgment and fidelity I can most rely and by no means to make a commonplace book <clears throat> of my reading. And he continued with his explication of the collection by saying, Yet I shall occasionally note down such observations about the cure of diseases as I shall find in books of practice whose authors have had long and much experience, who have had uh, much reputation in their time, who have been little theoricians, that is, theoreticians, the despised hypothesizers and systematizers, and have dealt in few <clears throat> and simple medicines. And I think it's interesting here that Pringle spoke in the future tense, uh, which leads one to believe that perhaps he had the idea of gathering and publishing such a collection sometime in the past and had been gathering that collection as he went along. And this wouldn't be odd for Pringle, as we saw with his uh, observations uh, on uh, the military diseases. However, Borhoff's ideas concerning the collection and dissemination of medical knowledge uh, should also be remembered. We are said to reason when we compare the ideas we have uh, before experienced with each other, he wrote, that we may be distinctly informed of every property appertaining to each idea and thence from, uh, form a judgment of the agreement or difference between each. Nor is there anything more required to knowledge than this comparison distinctly and patiently procured. All the observations <clears throat> which we have made ought to be committed to paper, examined with the strictest attention and applied to the present circumstances of our patient's case. That by considering every particular, 
we may, by a slow and solid judgment, determine the latent causes of diseases. Now, this comes from volume one of Boerhaave's Institutes. And I think that in gathering and uh, editing and collating this material, Pringle was following the philosophy of his old uh, mentor. Now, what one notices immediately about these volumes is the, uh, the manner in which they are indexed. Pringle triple indexed each volume by disease and cause, treatment, and the proper name and place of the person mentioned. And he cross-referenced uh, between and within these indexes. And this indexing is quite important uh, because there seems to be no organizational concern at all as you go through them. The subjects are placed in each volume in quite a haphazard manner. Uh, and while Pringle um, indexed every volume himself, I've counted at least six other hands that have been, uh, that assisted him, that is, in uh, transcription of this material. Now, to ensure that if a subject uh, spilled over into another volume, um, the volume and page number was placed at the end of the article. As you see here, we're on page 153, and we are going to continue the discussion of Peruvian bark uh, in volume 6, page 192. Uh, and then he put that also at the beginning um, of where he would begin that in volume 6, page 192. Um, and so for the most part, one cannot get lost sorting through medical annotations, although um, as we see here, Pringle did make errors on occasion. This didn't come from volume 3, uh, following the note on page 147. Uh, but those are fairly few, anyway. Uh, also, Sir John was generally good about dating his entries. Um, there are a number of instances, such as the one that you see here, where he obviously left space for a year, but it was never filled in. This is Miss H in Spring Garden, a young lady of 17 years of age, of a costive habit and subject to nervous disorders. In autumn, blank was seized with a fever. Um, and another example here about the year blank, Dr. Stevenson of Edinburgh, having written to me of his recovery from a gouty colic, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and since this collection is not uh, chronological, all of the foregoing that I've just been discussing adds to the confusion of just when he decided to collate, edit, and publish the collection. Now, Pringle organized his collection topically rather than by the Linnaean botanical system of class, genus, and species that was so popular at this time. And there had been <clears throat> a handful of nosologies published by the late 1770s. Well, Pringle had very little use for nosologies, and his response to the publication of William Collins' synopsis of nosology in 1769 was communicated to Collins by one of his favorite pupils, a Dr. Monroe Drummond, in mid-December of 1771. So far as I know, Dr. John Pringle thinks the properties of diseases to be such as to render them incapable of those methodical and strict arrangements which are applicable to plants and the modern nosology in consequence, fanciful and useless. And not only so, but hurtful also, by fixing the mind on the circumstance of collocation merely and detaching from it the more accurate, uh, more accurate investigations into what is in general so little known." Unquote. And a few years later, Pringle 
uh, wrote, uh, this is in April of 1777, he wrote this opinion to his friend and colleague, Albrecht von Haller. I was glad to find you condemn the modern arrangement of diseases after the manner of the botanists. It can never take. At least it ought never to do it. What infatuation to be running after such puerilities in medicine and neglecting the solid reasoning that results chiefly from observation and next to that from such a knowledge of the animal economy which may be drawn from your excellent physiology. No, medical annotations is not a nosology, but rather a medical encyclopedia. Encyclopedias, of course, were not new to the 18th century, but had regained popularity during this era. Ephraim Chambers, uh, two-volume Cyclopedia, had been published in 1728. Uh, Diderot published his Encyclopédie <clears throat> from 1751 to 66. And the Encyclopedia Britannica printed its first edition in 1771. The large number of subjects found in medical annotations support this encyclopedic approach. I've put them here into three categories, symptoms and diseases, uh, therapeutics, and theory. And from Pringle's comments uh, concerning theoreticians, uh, it may seem odd that he included theoretical discussions, but inserted among the letters and case reports are excerpts from published works. For example, Haller's observations, um, his pathological observations, his physiological observations. Uh, Champeau and Faisal uh, published a, a book on <clears throat> reviving uh, individuals who had apparently drowned. Hoffman's Institutes, much like Boerhaave's, a large collection of, of um, medical physiology and, and so forth. Um, there are notes from Cullen's classes, uh, Ladron, Lanchisi, uh, Morgani's pathological observations, and of course, um, clinical commentary uh, that comes from Sydenham. Now, in January of 1759, Pringle wrote, Mr. Hunter has not been able from observation to decide between Boerhaave and Haller with regard to the question about the nature of inflammation. But he observes that the small arteries in all inflammations are sensibly dilated. And six years later, in February of 1765, Pringle added this marginal note. I talked to Mr. Hunter a second time on this subject. I found him in the same opinion with regard to inflammation and that having read Dr. White's account of nervous diseases, where the oscillation of the extreme arteries was mentioned as the cause of inflammation, he told me that in the first place, that oscillation could not be ascertained, and that if it were, still it was not sufficient to account for the appearances. Mr. Hunter supposes that the small arteries are rather weakened, and that by this relaxation they become more distended and thereby appear redder than they naturally do. Now, over the years, Pringle added marginal annotations such as that one and such as you see here in the red box. Um, he added these to his cases as new medical evidence became available to him. So it seems to me that in their original form, this correspondence served uh, as a very practical, had a very practical purpose, that of maintaining clinical competence and currency. It was sort of an 18th century physician's method of continuing medical education. 
Now, um, I want to take just a few moments and show you some, or I should say I want to make a few tentative comments uh, on the volume of Pringle's correspondence, and then I want to introduce some of his pen pals to you. I said tentative because um, the numbers that you see here uh, only come from the first five volumes, and they may be skewed once the other materials brought in. But if those first five volumes are representative, then Pringle's pen was busiest during the decade of the 1750s as his practice and reputation grew. Pringle's correspondence included physicians, surgeons, men of enlightenment science, colonial governors and politicians from Britain, France, Austria, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, Italy, North America, the Caribbean, and the East Indies. And I can only show you the ones that were wealthy enough or famous enough to have their images recorded for history. The rest are only known because they are in Pringle's notes. But the real-time experiences of these individuals with uh, diseases and therapy from around the world and in private practice, in hospitals, during wartime and peace, uh, provided the patient-based observations for comparison that Pringle ad or that uh, Boerhaave advocated. And they provided the practicality that Pringle sought in compiling this medical compendium. Now, contrary to Pringle's intentions, the collection, uh, as it has come down to us, does resemble a series of medical commonplace books. Uh, he edited <clears throat> these volumes, particularly the later ones, with a draconian hand. Uh, large entries are scribbled over and uh, some offending pages were just sliced out altogether with a very sharp knife. Now, these would be very sloppy and difficult uh, to use commonplace books indeed. Actually, what Pringle left the Royal College was a work in progress. A work meant to be a comprehensive encyclopedia of what is the most useful in medical practice, what we would call today, I think, evidence-based medicine. Regrettably, the project was overcome by Pringle's infirmities. So, there you have it. My observations the, on the nuts and bolts, if you will, of medical annotations. Now, in the time remaining, I would like to step into the guise of the dreaded theorician, as Pringle would say, and present very briefly to you my hypothesis of what medical annotations holds for medical historians. Uh, John Thompson, a well-known and respected surgeon, lecturer, and physician of Edinburgh, and the first Regis Chair of Military Surgery at the university, made a remarkable statement in his account of the life, lectures, and writings of William Cullen in the early 1840s. Now, I know this is a long quotation. It breaks every rule I was ever taught or ever learned about presentations. But it's important, <clears throat> and I would like for you to go ahead and read it for the next few seconds, if you wouldn't mind. When someone's done, raise your hand. In other words, Thompson is saying that 
between about 1740 and 1775, a significant epistemological shift in British medicine was brought about by a handful of physicians in their seminal works here indicated parenthetically by Thompson. <clears throat> Thompson has identified a transitional period in the history of medicine and medical epistemology. Uh, this period has also been identified but uh, not explained by contemporary historians uh, Thomas M. Brown in his 1968 PhD dissertation, Mechanical Philosophy in the Animal Economy, and the late Dr. Lester S. King in his book, The Road to Medical Enlightenment from 1970. And this transitional period uh, came about because Pringle and his contemporaries, uh, for them, the medical theory that they had been taught, which is largely the synthetic work of Boerhaave, uh, was based in hyd hydrodynamic mechanics with a generous infusion of that fledgling science of chemistry. And this left them with an explanatory dissatisfaction by the decade of the 1740s. Those physicians that were noted by Thompson in that quote uh, Others who corresponded with Pringle that uh, you see here, as well as Pringle's mentors, uh, John Stevenson and George Young in Edinburgh and Thomas Simpson of St. Andrews, embraced a healthy skepticism concerning the validity of current medical theory and an open mind to what the nature of living matter might be. And they also recognized that only through observation, experience, and experiment, and in that order, by the way, along with an acceptance of Newtonian concepts uh, of limited explanations for observed pathophysiological and physiological phenomena, and that any functional hypothesis beyond those limited explanations was absolutely pure speculation until experimented da uh, experimental data proved otherwise. The rigor of this new epistemological method, though, had a few significant limitations. Uh, first, <clears throat> obtaining experimental evidence was a slow process, uh, as RCPE President John Gardner lamented in his observations on the animal economy and on the causes and cure of diseases. This is in 1784, and he said that these subjects were difficult to investigate and, quote, small progress uh, has hitherto been made. But this slowness of our progress is not owing solely to the intricacy of the subject. In medical subjects, it is extremely difficult to follow the method of induction prescribed by Lord Verulam. The small number of data we possess prevents us from explaining phenomena in the animal economy, as well as the nature of the causes of several diseases and their particular operation on the system. Well, data production was dependent on the development of accurate experimental methods and equipment. But the reproducible experiment was becoming the trusted adjudicator of scientific truth. Secondly, the skeptical philosophy embraced by this new epistemology, which gave physicians now a certain freedom of thought, placed them in an awkward position vis-a-vis -vis their patients. Philosophical physicians of an earlier era always knew the how and why of the medical phenomena that they encountered. Hence, their reputations and their fees were quite secure. 
However, the skeptical MD without robust observations, experience, and or experimental data could not do so. Uh, he had to accept something um, of an agnostic approach to clinical practice. He had to learn to admit to himself, to his colleagues, and also to some of his patients what he did not know. And thirdly, a physician admitting ignorance can be in a very precarious position. And any physicians in the audience know what I mean. You have made an examination of a very sick young patient before you. A handful of unsatisfactory working diagnoses bounce around in your mind. The mother is looking at you for some sign of hope. And you excuse yourself as gracefully as possible to consult a large medical compendium and perhaps a handy medical colleague. In the pages of medical annotations, Pringle was preparing a practical practice tool, a compendium of large and varied medical experiences and experiments, uh, essentially a proxy for a lack of timely experimental data that could not be considered the work of theoricians. It embraced the observational, the experiential, and the experimental explicatory methods that were judiciously empirical uh, and rational while simultaneously refusing to venture into fanciful physiological and pathophysiological theories unsubstantiated by any fact. <clears throat> I believe that in the writings of these men, and especially in medical annotations, that this, epist uh, this epistemological change in the gathering of the validation and the use of medical knowledge will be found. And in conclusion, I'm very happy to say that the Center of Medical History at the University of Glasgow is going to allow me to pursue my hypothesis uh, in a research PhD program over the next three years. So thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.